Just about three weeks ago, I was headed out the door to church on a Monday morning. Had a list of things that I wanted to accomplish to get done before my 8 o'clock meeting with Pastor Eric. And as I was headed out the door, I fell. I didn't really understand why I fell. Also couldn't understand why, after I fell, I had a hard time getting up. Uh, about an hour later, after I'd taken some time and rested, felt a little better, tried to get up again, thinking I can text Pastor Eric, let me know I'm going to be a little late, and we still have the meeting, and then I crumpled down again in our kitchen. And as painful as it was to just collapse on my legs, it wasn't like I fell over, but I just fell down, straight down on my legs, as painful as that was, it was more difficult that Nicole and the kids were up and they watched me go down. It's more difficult than I had to call a friend and say, I need you to come pick me up because I cannot stand up. Well, thankfully, I found out that it was pretty simple, just a lack of potassium, and with some potassium in my system, suddenly my legs came back. But then that moment, it was very difficult because I don't like to appear weak. I don't like to appear that I don't have it all together. I, like all of you, struggle with pride. And like most of us, my pride is connected to insecurities. I'm insecure about uh, what people might think of me. I have this desire to be seen as a good, hard worker, as someone who's strong. And that pride, motivated by my insecurity, makes it hard for me to admit that I need help. Now, it might seem counterintuitive to you that pride and insecurity are linked. Because insecurity is like this, you don't think highly of yourself. Or you're, you're not very uh, confident. Because that seems like it's the opposite of pride. But the reality is that pride is the result of insecurity. That pride clings on to what we are insecure about losing. That what we are afraid we might lose, we have to compensate for. So humility is willing to set aside power or status because we're not afraid of losing it. Pride refuses to set aside any status, set aside any power, to make itself look good in front of others because it's afraid that it will lose everything. Humility is born out of a place of security. See, I'm afraid that sometimes we think that humility comes as a result of not thinking very highly of ourselves. If we think less of ourselves, that then we're humble. But in reality, when we think poorly of ourselves, when we are insecure, that leads to pride. It leads to a comp- compensation. Humility rather comes when we have clarity on who we are and clarity on who God is. When we have the right perspective of who we are and the right perspective of who God is. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. Humility is thinking of ourselves as who we are. We see a great example of this in Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 tell us, Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. One translation puts it this way. He did not see equality with God as something to be grasped after, as something to be clung to. Jesus knew who he was. Verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was very clear on who he was. 
He knew that he was the Son of God. He didn't think of his equality with God as something that had to be grasped after, that he had to cling to it, he had to hold on to it tightly. For that reason, he was willing to set it aside, to come and live as a man, and even die the death of a criminal. Because Jesus was clear on who he was, he was willing to set aside his status. And the verse that follows that passage tells us, therefore God exalted him above all. Because he was willing to set aside his status, it actually led to greater exaltation. What you and I have to recognize is we have to see our true place as God's children. Before we'll be willing to be, be humble, to have humility, we must see who we are in God's presence. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That's the passage of Ashley to, to look at. It tells us, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. Before we can get to the phrase, humble themselves, you need to recognize what comes before that. If my people who are called by my name. Now, everyone in this room has a last name. Now, my two children are here, and they have the last name of Edwards because they carry my name. My wife, Nicole, is here, and she has the last name Edwards because she married me and she took on my name. And what God says is that my people who are called by my name, my people who have joined into my family, they are my people. They belong to me. They're my family. My people who are called by my name. You see, we have to realize that our relationship with God is not one that we've earned. Our relationship with God is not one that we should be insecure about because we've got to keep up this act and continue to do the right things to keep this relationship with God. No, we have His name. We are in His family. Tim Keller has a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. How's the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven. It does not start off, oh, most holy God. It starts off, our Father. And Keller says that for us to understand those opening words helps us see what the rest of the prayer is all about. Because if we see that we have a relationship with God, not because we have earned something, but rather because we are His children, it makes the rest of the prayer make sense. Now hopefully every one of you has a relationship with your father that's a father-like relationship and not a landlord relationship. Perhaps some of you do have a landlord relationship with your father. They do things for you because you've paid rent or because you've done something for them. If you have a landlord, you're the tenant, you tell the landlord something's broken and they need to fix it because you've paid your rent. But if you live in your father's house, it's different. And we come to God not because we're tenants, that we've paid our dues and so he owes us something, but rather we are his children. And when we recognize that we are God's children, our relationship with Him is not something that is tenuous. It's not something that can be stolen from us. It's not something that we have to keep up appearances to maintain. God said, my people who are called by my name. You see, God made a covenant with these people. He rescued from the desert and He made a covenant, rescued them from Egypt and made a covenant with them in the desert. He says to him in Deuteronomy 7, 6, The Lord thy God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. God had chosen these people and he was committed to them. They were like a treasure to him. You see, we're afraid that if we humble ourselves, we'll lose something. 
We're afraid that if people see us for who we really are, that we'll lose something. And we should not be fearful of losing something because the most important thing that we could have, God has given to us as His children. And that will not be taken away from us. When God refers to His people in this passage, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it comes right after verse 13. And verse 13 refers to a time when God would send a pandemic or he'd send famine or he'd send war because they had turned from him. And so God is referring to people who were called by his name even though they've turned their backs on them. Even when we fail God, we are still his children. How many of you have children? How many of your children have made you crazy, right? 100%. But even when they make you crazy, even when they're disobedient, even when they're difficult, they're still your child. And even when you almost hate them, you still love them, right? God loves us. We are His children. We are His people. We are called by His name. And that love that He has for us, that calling upon us, it's not because we are so good. It's because through Jesus we are in His family. For this reason, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's talking about he'll be arrested and taken away from them. And he says, you will, see you, you will see me again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. After the resurrection, you will see me, and that joy that you feel no one can take. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, or depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This relationship that we have with the Father, it cannot be stolen away from us. It cannot be threatened by any principality or any power. It cannot be threatened by any politician or any demon. It is ours. And if we will recognize that we are safe in the arms of Jesus... We can stop pretending that we've got it all together and just experience His love. And see, I think that we're so busy trying to look like someone who deserves God's love that we fail to experience God's love. God doesn't love you because you have it all together. You're not His child because you do the right things. You are simply His child. And so, understanding that, then we can enter into this humbling of ourselves. Not being afraid that we're going to lose something. And it's important that we enter into this humbling because we cannot apply the rest of the passage of Scripture unless we first humble ourselves. Look at that passage. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, and seek my face, then I will heal their land. I will hear from heaven and heal their land. You see, we cannot get to the repentance and we can't get to the prayer phases of this verse unless we first apply the humbling. Because if you're not humble, you don't repent. Because it's not your problem and it's everyone else's problem. If you're not humble, you don't pray. Because you can handle this on your own. And you're not desperate enough to need God's help. We must come down from our pride. We must be humbled so that we recognize our own part to play in this broken world. Have you noticed that there's a really common phrase that's being used in social media and articles? And 
people saying things like, if you do this, then you are the problem. If you don't know this, then you are part of the problem. If you don't see why this is an issue, you are part of the problem. And all around us, there are these ways for us to see that everyone else is the problem. You are the problem. God says to the people, if the sword has come into the land, if there is a pandemic, if there is pestilence, if there is famine, you should not look at all the people who are the problem. You should humble yourself. This word, humble, humble yourselves, it means to subdue. The word is used elsewhere in Scripture where an army would come into Israel and David and his army would go out and fight against the Philistines who had, had encroached upon Israel's land. They had invaded Israel and they would go and they would stop this army that was wreaking havoc in the countryside of Israel. In one place, they have turned the tide against the Philistines. They've put the Philistines to flight. They're on the retreat. And David and his army go after them, chase after them, and subdue them. No longer are they going to wander about in Israel's territory without anybody stopping them. They are subdued. They are brought under control or limits. To be subdued means to be brought under control or put within limits. And in our extremely individualistic and freedom of expression age, we don't like anyone telling us our limits. And if they do, we say things like, Who do you think you are? You can't tell me what to do. How dare you tell me that I can't do this or that I know my rights. And right now our culture is geared to emphasize this fact that you are always right. Right now you can find a, a, a news channel that is supportive of your viewpoint. That way you can have it confirmed. Facebook knows that when you like a post, it means that you're engaged with it, so they continually serve you up more posts like that one so that you'll stay on their service longer and they'll make more ad money off of you. The only exception to that algorithm is when you comment on posts that you disagree with and they say that you like arguing with people, so they serve you up more posts to argue with people about. They don't care about your political viewpoint. They don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. What they care about is keeping you on the service longer because the longer you're on there, the more ads you see, the more ads you see, the more money they make. And what this has done is it's constantly served us up things that make us feel good about our position or make us angry. It's incredibly unhealthy. Have you ever noticed that it's really easy to make friends with people who are a lot like you? You know why that is? Because when you see in them qualities that you have, you're like, yep, that's a good person. I like that person. That's like Pastor Eric and I, we get along great. He, here's someone who's called to preach, is passionate about the church, went to Bible college, loves reading books. Of course I'm going to like him. That's a lot like me. I'm like, those are all good qualities in a person because they're my qualities. And we like people who are like us because it's a way for us to like ourselves. Do, do you remember four years ago when Trump was elected and everyone was like, who are these people who voted for Trump? All the people on the, the news, they just couldn't believe it because they are insulated in these coastal elite gatherings. They're surrounded by people who are just like them. And they're like, who voted for this guy? And all of us in the Midwest are like, I know who voted for this guy. There's Trump supporters all around me. But they couldn't imagine it. 
Because they were surrounded by people just like them. Why do we surround ourselves with people who are just like us? Because we like for our biases and our opinions and our values to be confirmed. Because it solidifies our viewpoint. And we need to recognize that there's a limit to what we know. And you might be able to take an attack or a, a perspective or a value or an opinion online and find a lot of people who support it, but that doesn't mean that you're right. We've gotten to this place where if I get enough likes or if I get enough confirmation, I'm right about what I'm saying. And that's not valid. We need to recognize that there's a limit to what we know. We need to be subdued. We cannot wander all over creation knowing everything about everything. There's a lot I don't know. I don't know how much I don't know. But right now we live in this age where we're all experts on everything. People I went to high school with are experts on coronavirus. People I grew up in the neighborhood with are experts on politics. We're all experts on everything these days. And we need to be subdued. We need to recognize that there's a whole lot we don't know that is outside of our area of expertise, that is outside of our realm of understanding. Do you remember that moment at the end of Job? Job has experienced all of these horrible things have happened to him. And he says, God, why has this happened? Now, Job, we know, is a holy man, that he's done nothing wrong to deserve all of these things that are happening to him. That in fact, the reason he's experiencing this is because he's a holy man. That's the reason Satan picked him. And Job says, God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. And what is God's response to Job? Job, where were you when I put the oceans in place? Job, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Job, where were you when I created the fish that's out in the depths of the sea that you don't even know about? You know what he's doing? He's subduing Job. He's saying, Job, you don't have the right to speak on this. And even though Job was a righteous man, he needed to be humbled in this moment. The word humble, it means to subdue. It also means to bow. It was used to speak of someone who bows before a king. And when someone bows before a king, they're trying to make obvious in the physical space what's true in the social hierarchy. You are higher than me. I am making myself lower because you are higher than me. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to make ourselves low in comparison to how high He is. You know how we gather and we worship and we sing Jesus' praises? Because we need regular reminders that He is God and we're not. I need to regularly be reminded that He is God, and I'm not. And you might be sitting there saying, hey, wait, you're a pastor. Don't you know that He's God and you're not? Yes, I know that intellectually. But I still find myself pulled into this idea that all of these things need to happen. I have to do them. I have to make sure it happens. I've got to make it come together. It's on me. It's on my shoulders. And how many of you have walked around with the weight of the world on your shoulders? Why? Because you're acting like you're God and He's not. 
No, we'd never say that. We'd never say that you're, we're God. We'd never say, I'd never say I'm God. But the way that I act often exposes the fact that I feel like that all of this is on me when it's not. He is God. I'm not. I need to regularly put myself in a position to recognize that he is higher than me, that his ways are higher than my ways. And that's the reason we gather and we sing praises to God, because we regularly need that reminder. Thomas Watson said, A humble Christian is one who studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies. In other words, we're very clear on who we are and how we're imperfect and broken, and we're also very clear on how good and righteous God is. He's good. So what's the practical application of this? Well, one, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you said these hard words? It's difficult for me to even say it in this hypothetical situation, but when was the last time you said, I was wrong? And guys, if you don't remember, your wife probably has it written down somewhere. The last time you said that, we don't like to say that we're wrong. We don't like to say that we... We're wrong on this issue. I didn't know what I was talking about. I had the opportunity to apply this message this past week. I don't know if you've been following what's been happening in the Supreme Court, but there have been a couple of cases that churches have brought all the way to the Supreme Court over this being shut down during the pandemic. There's a church in Nevada that had brought their case all the way through the, the series of appeals to the Supreme Court. And the basis of their case is that in Nevada, churches are limited to having 50 people, no matter how large the church is. So even a church that had a huge building, like some of the mega churches here in our community, they could only have 50 people in a gathering, no matter how far they could spread them out, if they wore masks or whatever. But casinos could have hundreds of people in them. It wasn't a fair application of the law. Now, most churches recognize that this is a, an extreme situation and that there were times that we needed to be apart from one another. There are things that we need to do to try to slow down this virus. They weren't unwilling to abide by those practices. What they were asking for was just a fair application of the law that was being applied to casinos be applied to churches. And honestly, in reading the case, I didn't see how anyone could side with the governor of Nevada. But this past week, the Supreme Court upheld his mandate. And so today, if churches meet and gather and have more than 50 people, they are breaking the law. And I read some of the opinions of the Supreme Court justices. Some of them are very conservative, and I just couldn't believe it. You know what I did? I got angry. I got upset. I wrote up a good post in my mind of how I was going to talk about how this country is in all kinds of trouble. But I was reminded that if I believe this passage of Scripture, if I believe 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, the first step in fixing what is broken is not a post on Facebook or a call to my congressman. The first step is to humble myself. There's a pastor in Richmond that I really respect. His name is Glenn Johnson. 
And years ago, I don't really remember the issue, but years ago there was a decision that was made by the local authorities that he very much disagreed with. I think that it had something to do with strip clubs in the area. And so he decided he was going to go down to the courthouse. He was going to go down to the Capitol, and he was going to protest. And when he got down there and he had a sign that he was going to make up, instead of writing shame on you, he wrote, forgive me. People asked him, why are you walking around with this sign that says, forgive me? And he says, I am sorry that I have not done a better job of teaching morality and the principles of God in our community. He was taking responsibility. He was humbling himself. There's so much broken in our world that I would like to fix. So much in our world that I am quite sure is wrong. So much in our world that I feel like if given the opportunity, I could really straighten it out. But if I believe God's word to be true, I must see that the first step in healing our land and fixing what is broken and turning things right side up is to humble myself. So would you bow with me and let's pray. Let's pray a humble prayer before the Lord. Before I pray, let me ask you, when was the last time that you recognized you were wrong? When was the last time you recognized that you and God didn't have the same perspective on something? When was the last time that God convicted you of a sin and you repented of your ways? When was the last time you called out to God in desperation, not demanding, but recognizing that you have already been given way more than you deserve? We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we've had to gather, and to look at this passage of Scripture, which lays it out very clearly, Lord, that we should start with humility. We should start with humbling. And so, Lord, we come before you and we confess our sin. We recognize our need. We see that we are broken. We see that there is so much we don't know. And, Lord, I pray that through this, through this humbling, that the process of healing and renewal would begin. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.